Welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history. This week, we're drilling deep into the history of Paris, all the way through the layers of modern construction, past the detritus of 2,000 years of civilization, all the way into the primordial past. Where modern-day Paris now sits, there was once an ocean whose seashells and skeletons collected and compressed into a precious material, limestone. Over time, these ancient animal fossils were scraped, chiseled, and hewn out of the bedrock, and they formed the very foundation of a great city. Notre Dame Cathedral, the Palais Royal, the Louvre, all of these great monuments got their start deep in the earth, drawing on the bones of the sea. Today, we'll learn about the startling moment 200 years ago when the city and her bones began making their way back home. On December 17, 1774, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon, a very peculiar disaster hit the center of Paris. Back then, the city limits of Paris were very different, and the toll gate to the city sat right in the middle of the 14th arrondissement, next to a tiny street named the Rue d'Enfer, aka the Road of Hell. As always, traffic was backed up, with farmers and vendors from the suburbs yawning their way through the line, waiting to pay taxes on their goods so that they could be brought to the marketplace. French bureaucracy being what it is and always has been, the wait took a while, and a few of the farmers figured they'd rather drink a bottle or two of wine rather than pay taxes on them. I'd like to imagine that at first, the farmers blamed the wine. Surely the sights they were about to see were the result of a happy hour that had just gone a little overboard? Because at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just a hundred feet away from where the farmers were sitting, on the Paris side of the toll gate, everything slipped. The roofs began pointing up at the sky at a weird angle. The sound of an enormous groan issued from the streets just around the corner. Then, all of a sudden, boom! An enormous ruckus, and the tipsy farmers were no longer staring at the houses of the Rue d'Enfer, but instead, they saw a bunch of very confused Parisians staring back at them from the next street over. Because beginning at the toll gate and extending down the length of the Rue d'Enfer for a quarter of a mile, the ground of Paris had simply opened up. The street, with all of its houses and inhabitants, was swallowed up in an enormous hole. The mouth of hell had been opened. To understand why these streets of 18th century Paris began disappearing, we must journey all the way back, past Renaissance Paris, past medieval Paris, all the way back past Paris itself, until we reach the age of Lutetia, the ancient Roman settlement. 
When the ancient Romans first defeated the Gauls and took possession of the area we now call Paris, it was filled with swamps and some adobe huts and a couple of modest homes made of flimsy branches. That simply wouldn't do for the great civilization of Rome. The conquerors needed baths and temples and civic centers, and to make those, they needed the right building material, limestone. The first quarry in Paris was built by the Romans in what is now Rue Monge, right next to where remains of an ancient Roman amphitheater can still be seen to this day. For the next 1,200 years, the territory would change hands and even names, but the digging continued. When the new city of Paris decided to build its first churches, they used limestone from the quarry. When medieval Paris decided to construct a great Gothic cathedral dedicated to Notre Dame, they used limestone from the quarry. The quarry grew huge, sprawling across acres of land, until city officials realized that the quarry itself was threatening to use up all of the same fields needed by the farmers to grow food. There was only one other option. Instead of making the quarry bigger, they would have to make the quarry deeper. Over time, French kings paid less and less attention to these quarries until that fateful moment in 1774 when one long-forgotten quarry called attention to itself the best way it could. It collapsed, and it brought a quarter mile of Paris with it. King Louis XVI was really good at ignoring problems. This is a habit which would eventually cost him a country, a kingdom, and a head, but even he had to pay attention when entire streets began shuffling their way towards the Earth's core. French bureaucracy being what it is and always has been, it took a little over two years to appoint an official inspector of quarries. His name was Charles Axel Guillaume, and he is a French hero, and everyone should know his name. He may have had a lot of worries when he took on the new role, but job security wasn't one of them, because on his very first day of work, on his way to visit the ruins of the Rue d'Enfer, he was held up by a traffic jam because, I am not kidding you, another Parisian street collapsed into a giant sinkhole. Clearly, something had to be done, and soon. Assembling an army of workers, Guillaume divided his forces into three teams. First, the excavation team did the grunt work, clearing away the rubble from the quarry tunnels. Second, the masonry team would follow up with the trowels, shaping the rubble dug out by the excavation team into pillars, which were then used to hold up the roof of the quarry. The masonry team would reshape some of the very same limestone dug up from the quarries and use it to line the tunnel walls. Finally, the cartography team swept through, organizing and numbering the passageways, adding wayfinding signs, and creating meticulous maps of the quarry maze for future reference. And what a reference it was! Because back then, homeowners in Paris technically owned all the earth below their home. So if a landlord was struck with a vision of drilling down to the earth's core, well, 
by golly, that's his right. Now, since the space underneath all of the houses was off limits, Guillemot built his beautiful underground passageways directly parallel to the streets above. Considering that most streets in 18th century Paris lacked street signs and house numbers, Guillemot's underground mirror image of Paris was, in fact, easier to navigate than the actual streets of real-life Paris. Soon after Guillermo and his men began their work, the terrible truth of the situation revealed itself. Over the past 2,000 years, miners would finish excavating all the limestone they could from a certain section of a quarry. Years later, another group of miners would dig below that section and excavate the new section instead, so that eventually, over time, the floor of one quarry section became the roof of another. At one point in the process, Guillermo found himself many stories below the Earth's surface, only to hear the sound of carriages passing far overhead on the street. To his dawning horror, Guillermo realized the truth. Vast neighborhoods of the left bank, with their heavy, stone-carved banks, apartment buildings, churches, stores, sat over air pockets a hundred feet deep with only tiny columns of limestone holding them up. After 2,000 years of excavation, Paris was a house of cards. Working around the clock for the next 10 years, Guillermo and his men took on a role that went way beyond maintenance. Whether anyone realized it or not, they knew that they were all that stood between Paris and eventual collapse. In the end, Guillermo and his army constructed over 200 miles of reinforced walls, ceilings, and tunnels, all of which were built to last. They were exquisite cathedrals of the earth. They were beautifully planned, executed, and mapped. They were constructed with care, and they were completely, totally empty. Guillermo built a beautiful limestone palace, knowing that no one would ever see it. But little did he know, his beautiful underground tunnels would soon become one of the most densely populated neighborhoods in Parisian history. On May 30th, 1780, Paris experienced a different kind of architectural collapse. Following a long rainstorm, the retaining wall of the oldest cemetery in Paris gave way. Like the quarries, you might say that Holy Innocence Cemetery was the victim of too much excavation. Since the 1100s, Parisians had been stacked on top of one another, victims of the plague, the St. Bartholomew Day Massacre, and just, you know, life in the Middle Ages, they were all stored in mass graves, up to 1,500 bodies at a time. During one particularly bad outbreak of the plague back in medieval Paris days, over 50,000 Parisians were buried in holy innocence within a single month. By May 30th, an estimated 2 million Parisians were buried inside Holy Innocence Cemetery, and the walls of the cemetery just couldn't take it anymore. So if you think your neighbors are bad, take a moment 
and imagine how it felt to wake up on May 31st and find a bunch of decomposing corpses in your backyard. What to do with all these bodies? At this moment, Charles Axel Guillaume said, Hey, I know just the place. Soon, Louis XVI decided to move the inhabitants of not only Holy Innocents, but most cemeteries in Paris, into the newly completed underground labyrinth of tunnels, or, as locals were beginning to call it, the catacombs. For the next two years, Paris witnessed one of the most extraordinary and one of the most gruesome migrations in the city's history. Close your eyes and picture this scene. Every night, once the street lamps are extinguished so as not to freak out the neighbors, laborers load up horse-drawn carts with stacks and stacks of bones, body parts, and heaven knows what else. Speaking of heaven, monks are standing beside the carts, leading chants all night long. The monks follow the cart once it begins its slow progress towards the catacombs, holding burning torches and trying very hard not to step on any body parts falling off the back of the cart. Imagine that happening on your street. Imagine it happening for years. Not everything could be moved gracefully. And, well, because this episode is already freaky enough, I'll just put it this way. You wouldn't want to watch Parisians make candles and soap for at least a couple more years. After arriving at the quarry, all the bones were mixed in together, creating an almost poetic jumble of France's chaotic history in one poignant space. As one author put it, they were nuns from convent graveyards and lepers from cemeteries that had once lain outside the city walls. The victims of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre were lumped together with the Catholics who had killed them. But the wheel of history kept turning, and there were more bones to come. A few years after moving its dead bodies, Paris decided to produce a few more, and it launched itself a revolution. Victims of the guillotine ended up in the catacombs, including Jean-Paul Marat, and even Robespierre himself. Aristocrats, who had spent their lives inside beautiful limestone mansions in the Marais district, found themselves buried in the quarries from which their own homes had once been excavated. One Frenchman got himself lost in the tunnels around this time, and his body wasn't found for another 11 years. After the revolution, Paris quietly continued migrating more and more cemeteries into the catacombs until 1860. In 1867, the catacombs opened to the public. In 1883, the cemetery of St. Catherine finally made its move a little bit later than all of the rest. The cemetery of St. Catherine moved its inhabitants into the catacombs. The bones of their dead were stacked in a neat and orderly fashion and were built up into the walls themselves, contributing to the stability of the underground chambers. Amidst the skeletons moved into the catacombs was that of Charles Axel Guillaume himself. As one historian wrote, somewhere now in that vast cathedral of calcium and phosphate, 
Charles Axel Guillaume is still helping to prevent Paris from vanishing into the void. Today, Charles Axel Guillaume's excavations are best known for the catacombs, though only 5% of the 200 miles of tunnel are even dedicated to human remains. Instead, the other 95% of the tunnels not filled with bones found more creative uses. At first, French farmers used the damp underground passageways to grow mushrooms. During World War II, both French resistance fighters and Nazis used the quarry tunnels as bunkers and hideouts. Now, the tunnels are primarily occupied by cataphiles, underground explorers who use the city's vast network of quarry tunnels to move throughout Paris. For decades, it was possible to stumble across a quarry tunnel entrance, often in the most unlikely of places. One high school opened a cupboard door to find a doorway to the tunnels left behind by Nazis who had built their bunker right underneath. Other entrances to the quarries were found in the cellars of bars, hospitals, church crypts, subway tunnels, and even skyscrapers. While most of these entrances have been sealed over the past few years, a few adventurers are still putting the tunnels to use. In 2004, Parisian police entered the quarry tunnels through a drain as part of a training exercise. As the officers passed through part of the underground tunnel, all of a sudden the air was filled with the sound of barking dogs. They had tripped a secret alarm, but set by whom? Climbing deeper underground, the police finally discovered an enormous cavern, and inside the cavern was a movie theater. Equipped with a giant screen, projector, movies, and seating for at least 20 people, the theater also boasted its own fully stocked bar and even a couscous maker. Most puzzling of all, the cinema was equipped with professionally installed electricity and no fewer than three phone lines. Returning three days later with experts from the Board of Electricity to figure out just what was going on, the police realized someone's been here. The utility cables were cut and the police found a note on the ground and it read, do not try to find us. Since the afternoon when the earth swallowed up the Rue d'Enfer, sinkholes and collapses are now rare. Yet they're not unheard of. In 1961, the chamber of an old chalk mine collapsed just south of the city, killing 21 people. In 1975, an enormous sinkhole was discovered underneath the Gare du Nord train station. Luckily, these days we have building materials to help prevent these accidents, like the 500 cubic meters of cement used to fill in the Gare du Nord station. Today, responsibility for the stability of the tunnels remains in the hands of the Inspection Générale de Carrières, or the IGC, the very same organization once led by Charles Axel Guillaume. In 2011, a team from National Geographic journeyed into the caves with Anne-Marie Le Parmentier, an IGC geologist. Wearing headlamps and tall rubber boots, 
Anne-Marie and her team led a routine expedition through the tunnels, measuring oxygen levels and checking for structural weakness. Even now, it's possible to come across artifacts from the tunnel construction or even the original mines. Fossils peek out from the limestone as a reminder that millions of years before Paris, even before Lutetia, this area was at the bottom of a vast ocean. Together, the journalist from National Geographic and the geologist considered a pillar constructed by a member of Charles Axel Guillaume's army, a series of boulders stacked on boulders, holding up a ceiling nearly 100 feet underground. The roof of the quarry chamber displays a large crack. Don't touch, says the geologist Anne-Marie Le Parmentier. It's a bit fragile. Thank you for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana and I research, write, and produce every episode of the show. If you haven't done so already, visit our website at www.thelandofdesire.com to find out more about today's episode. This week, if you haven't done so already, take a moment to like us on Facebook because I'll be sharing more articles on the Paris catacombs for anyone who wants to learn more. For example, did you know that in 2005, a group of tunnel explorers spent over a year sneaking into the Pantheon from the tunnels and secretly restoring a historic clock? You can bet the Pantheon staff got a heck of a surprise when the clock started chiming after 50 years. Learn about this and more on the Land of Desires Facebook page. Thank you again to everyone who took the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. We passed the 100 review mark and I appreciated all of your feedback. As always, it's a complete pleasure hearing from all of you. So join me for our next episode in two weeks. And until then, au revoir!